These days it's easier than ever before to connect to other people. No matter where we are, we can phone, text, email, tweet, Skype, Snapchat, Facebook, Viber or WhatsApp or a whole load of other different ways to contact people. And yet in this age of social media, it seems like many people are getting more and more disconnected from each other. We can find it easier sometimes to text somebody on the other end of the, wor- in the, on the edge of the world than just speak to somebody on the other side of the room. We can have hundreds of Facebook friends, but very few real friends. We can spend hours online, but struggle just to take unhurried time and talk face to face with somebody. And so loneliness and isolation is a real problem in today's world. I was reading research that claims that one in three Americans over 45 identify themselves as chronically lonely. One in three. And that's up from one in five just a decade ago. And one in four said that they have no one in whom they can, they can really talk to about their personal troubles or triumphs. And this is not just a problem with older people. There was a study by the American Council of Life Insurance and they reported that the most lonely group in America were college students. Where you would think they would have loads and loads of friends and yet they felt the most isolated and on their own. And as a result, some people have come up with ingenious uh, coping mechanisms to try and cope with this loneliness. One of them went viral a couple of years ago was the Moomin House Cafe in Tokyo, Japan. I don't know if you remember the Moomins. Uh, they were a family of white hippo-like characters that I remember being on the TV when I was a kid. So that was a few years ago. Well, in Japan they're still popular. And so this cafe has a Moomin theme. But they also wanted to save their customers from the awkwardness of dining alone. And so they came up with the idea of seating their diners with a giant stuffed toy moomin. The idea is that if you share your your meal with a moomin, then you don't feel alone. Now it might be a cute idea for some people. Some people like it. But I don't think anything like that can replace our desire for real Loving, personal relationships. The ultimate relationship that we need, of course, is our relationship with God as our Father, through our faith in Jesus. But we were also made for genuine community. We were made to be in relationship with other people. And this is what the church is meant to provide. As we'll see next week, the early church in Acts was far from being a perfect church. But it was an obviously caring community. We're going to have a look at that this morning from Acts chapter 4 and verse 32 down to verse 35. If you have a Bible, open it up. If not, just listen as I read it out eh, to you. So Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But they shared everything 
they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. These Christians enjoyed a really deep connection with each other. All the believers were one in heart and mind. This wasn't an enforced uniformity. They were not pressurised to conform to man-made external rules of behaviour or culture. These believers still retained their individual personalities and their different characteristics. But this was a radical unity. These believers were connected together in their thinking, in their emotions, in their will. Their minds were filled with the same understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that He deserved their, their whole lives lived out for them, for Him. Their hearts were filled with the same love for God and for other people. And they were committed to the same goal and the same purpose of living for Christ each day, sharing his go- the gospel with the world and seeing God's kingdom come. They were united at the very core of their being. And this is the unity that God is looking for among his people. It's not an organizational sameness. Rather, it's a deep internal togetherness that comes from our understanding of our new identity in Christ. Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 says this, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Then it goes on, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So whatever used to divide us, whether it was race, or economic status, or gender, or age, or family status, or educational level, or career, or musical taste, or politics, or personality, or anything else, we can set all of them to one side. Because if we see ourselves first and foremost as a child of God, then we will see each other first and foremost as our brother or our sister in Christ. And if we do that, then church won't be a religious service for us to attend once a week. Instead, it'll be a family of God's children. It'll be a community of Jesus' followers. It'll be people who will be deeply connected to each other through their love for God, through their faith in Jesus, through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This is the unity that God is looking for in our lives. And this radical internal unity will be lived out 
in, how, in our everyday lives as a church. It certainly had a huge impact on how this early church functioned. We saw before that one expression of this was their desire to share their lives together. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They just wanted to spend time together. They just loved spending time with each other. So they ate together. They learned together. They worshipped together. They prayed together. They served together. And it's these shared experiences that deepens our connection with each other. The more that we spend quality time with each other, the more that we eat together, like we're going to do after this service, the more that we openly share our hearts with each other in times of worship and prayer, as we've done this morning, the more that we study God's Word together, And learn from each other, like on Sundays or through our small groups. The more that we serve together, stand shoulder to shoulder and work hard for the kingdom of God, like we're going to do over these two weeks. And the more that we genuinely and authentically open up our hearts and our lives to each other. The more that we'll realise our unity in Christ. The deeper our hearts will connect. And the stronger our bonds of love will grow. This is the unity that God wants to see grow in our church. But this unity didn't only motivate the church to share their lives together. They did far more than that. Verse 32, it says, they shared everything they had. This church's love and commitment to each other wasn't just empty words that they said. Neither was it a kind of naive goal that they never really achieved or never really lived out. It was something that they lived out in practice every day. They cared about each other so much that they were willing to share their resources with each other. And that's what real love does. Real love moves us to give of ourselves for the benefit of others. This is what John wrote in his letter. (coughs) Excuse me. Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. It's not wrong to tell somebody that you love them, as long as you're also showing it in your life. God doesn't want us just to talk about love here in our church. He wants us to show it visibly and practically as we share our resources with those who are in need. This is what Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Share with each other, with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. God wants us to open up our wallets, open up our houses, open up our lives to help our brothers and sisters in Christ. And of course, this this relates to far more than just our local church community here. Through Christ, we're brothers and sisters with everyone who has repented and put their faith in Christ. We are part of a worldwide family. And so we look for opportunities to express our love and commitment to them too. Like we do through our offering box when we give our ministry offering away to somebody who's not part of our, our church fellowship. Like this month, it's going to give... Be, be given to support the work that Mary's mum Mary's mum and dad are working in in India 
Now this doesn't mean, let me be very clear about this, this doesn't mean that each one of us have to give all our money away. I don't believe that. But it does mean that we have, need to have a different attitude to our possessions. The early church shared what they had because it says in verse 32, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. Now this wasn't some early form of communism that kind of removed all personal ownership. These people still owned their own possessions. We'll see that next week when Peter makes it clear to Ananias, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And we'll see the context of of why Peter was saying that to Ananias next week. So, although they owned their own possessions, they didn't think of them as using them just for their own benefit. They didn't just want to use them to benefit themselves. Rather, they saw that their possessions had been given to them so they could bless others. So they could benefit the other, other people in the church. Now, this isn't only true of our possessions. I think we can see this principle really clearly in our spiritual gifts. Our spiritual gifts are things like wisdom or knowledge or teaching or prophecy or healing or encouragement or mercy or leadership or a whole load of number of other empowerments for ministry. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12 and 11 that all of these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he gives them to each one just as he determines. So these spiritual gifts are given to, by the Holy Spirit to each and every believer in Christ. And he chooses who he's given these gifts to. But although they are given to us, in a very real sense, they are not given for us. So they're given to us, but not really for us. Paul says in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 12, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. These gifts are amazing blessings to us. They enable us to serve the Lord, to be able to to worship Him, to be able to bring glory to our Heavenly Father. And it's such a blessing to be able to use the gifts that God has given us in ministry and service. But God doesn't give us those gifts primarily to bless us. Instead, He gives us those gifts so that we can bless others. They're given for the common good. They're given so that we can serve others in church. So although these gifts are ours, and we alone are responsible for using them and for developing them, at the same time we must be willing to share them and use them for the benefit of other people. And it's that same attitude that God wants us to have for all of the gifts that God has given us in our lives. Whether we think of our possessions, or our house, or our car, or our money, or our energy, or our abilities, or our health, or our time, or anything else. These gifts are from God. And so they belong to us. 
And no one has the right to tell us what we should do with them. No one has the the right to come and take them from us. But at the same time, God wants us to be willing to use them. Use them for the benefit of others. See them them, them as gifts that God has given to us so that we can bless others. So that we can serve other people. As Paul says in Philippians 2 and 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we should be thinking, how can I use the gifts, the resources, <coughs> excuse me, the health, the ability, or whatever it is, how can I use them to bless others? How can I use them to bless my brothers and sisters in Christ? Either here in this local church, or outside in this world. And it's this attitude that led the early church to, to give to meet the needs of others. And to do it in an amazingly sacrificial way. Look at verse 34. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Now, this wasn't done all the time. It says from time to time this was done. After all, you can only sell your house once or your land once and then that's it. And neither was it in in any way forced or expected or a condition of being a member of that church. It was not. So this is not a rule or a command that we need to impose today in any sense, okay? But this was, this was the expression of the generosity of their hearts. In the hearts of these believers. They gave in this deeply sacrificial way because they so desperately wanted to meet the needs of those who were in need. And as a result, verse 34 says something amazing. There were no needy persons among them. There was nobody in that church that suffered through poverty. There was no one who went hungry. No one who was in financial hardship. This wasn't because God miraculously dropped money from the sky. Or that one day they just opened up their wallets and there was buying loads and loads of cash. Rather it was because God opened up the hearts of their brothers and sisters in Christ. To sacrificially give. So that their needs would be met. Actually this was commanded in the law for the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 15. There should be no poor among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance. He will richly bless you. If they lived in in obedience to the commands of God, then God promised to bless them so much so that there would be enough for everybody as long as they were willing to share what they had. Now we need to be clear about this. Because this is just one of those things that we need to be careful in how we think about this. This doesn't take away anybody's individual responsibility to work. For themselves. Paul's rule in 2 Thessalonians 3 and 10 was this. If a man will not work, 
he shall not eat. Okay? I think we should impose that this, this morning. If you don't work, then you don't get any lunch. I'm joking. What Paul was saying was the care of the church must never be used as an excuse for laziness. This doesn't apply to those who can't work or those who would love to work but can't find a job. Okay, That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking to, about those who are, who are of laziness, refuse to work and just expect other people to look after them. And so to those people who were tempted to rely needlessly on the charity of others, Paul says, such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. So none of this removes our own personal responsibility to work. Work is a gift that God has given us. And if we have the opportunity to do it, then that's what we should be doing. Nor does it take away our individual responsibility to look after our own families. Paul challenged those who were tempted to avoid looking after their own families by saying this in 1 Timothy 5 and 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Being part of the church community is not a way to duck out of our individual responsibilities to look after our own kids or our own husbands or wives or our own parents or whatever. It's not a way to say, oh well, the church will look after them so I don't need to. The church will do that so I can just sit back and let them do it. So that's not what what the Bible's talking about here. But it is a clear reminder that God holds us as responsible for doing what we can to help those around us. And in particular, helping our fellow Christians. God doesn't want us just to live an individualistic life. I'm only looking after me and mine. God wants us to have a care for others. Galatians 6 and 10, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. However we can work out this practice, and it'll make be different in each one of our lives, differently depending on our circumstances and our situations, our abilities, our resources. God wants his church to be characterized by genuine caring and generous giving. So we need to think about how can we put that into practice in our lives. Now maybe this seems like an impossibly high standard for us to reach. Maybe it seems like one of those pie-in-the-sky ideals that are so removed from the reality of modern life. How could we ever become that united as a church? How could we ever really share our lives together at that level? How could we ever really share our resources or even make sacrifices for others? But I think it's helpful to remember that these followers of Jesus, they weren't always so supportive or caring for each other. If you look back to the, the really early days of the, the, the disciples and how they related to each other, it wasn't this wonderful, united, caring, supportive group of men. In fact, rivalry and competition was something that often characterized them. Luke chapter 9, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. 
That's the way the kind of these guys thought initially. They were jockeying for position. They were looking to get ahead of the other person. This is really seen when James and John's mum went to Jesus with a question. Grant that one of these two sons of mine will sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Like any mum, she wanted to push her sons ahead. Get them ahead. Jesus, let, let, let one of them sit at your right hand, one at your left, and they can be, be like the, the second in command in your kingdom. They can have that really high position. Verse 24 of Matthew 20, it says, When the ten heard about this, the other disciples, they were indignant with the two brothers. And I don't think this was so much because they were shocked at this woman's question. They were outraged at the thought. I think it's probably because they were annoyed. Because she was pushing her sons ahead of them in the pecking order of disciples. But Jesus didn't want his community to be like that. This is what he said. The rulers of the Gentiles lord over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great must be your servant. The church is not supposed to be a hierarchy of people competing to get, to get, to get up the ladder of position and privilege. Instead, it's supposed to be a community of people who are eager to serve one another in love. Why is that? Well, Jesus went on to say, because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to the earth to enjoy a a position of power or influence or admiration. He said he came to serve by laying down his life for us. And he calls us, who are followers of Jesus, to do exactly the same. To follow in his footsteps. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So we shouldn't be characterized by any competition any rivalry, any seeking for position or privilege. Instead, we should be marked by selfless sacrifice as we follow in the footsteps of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. So it's the unconditional, unlimited, unending and undeserved love of God expressed so clearly at the cross and poured into our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit that will transform us and enable us to love each other as Jesus loved us. What we've done this morning in remembering Jesus in communion is not supposed to be just a worship time for God. Of course it is. But it's also supposed to impact our hearts and change how we relate to each other. How we serve each other. How we are eagerly looking for ways in which we can love each other. And it's this love, 
expressed in our church that should be a powerful witness to the lonely and the isolated in this world. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It should be our love for each other that should attract others so that they can experience that love for themselves through us. And then ultimately so that they can receive that love through faith in Christ. So this is our prayer this morning. That our church community would increasingly become a place where God's love would be shared. Where we serve together. Where we support one another. Where we even sacrifice for each other. And that we will be a safe place. Where the isolated or the lonely or the hurting can experience God's love.